Hi, this is Alan Ruff, the Thursday host of A Public Affair. If you have a moment and uh, the resources, remember to support the station. And if you will, head over to wrtfm.org to donate and to see what else is going on at the station. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. And good afternoon and welcome to this, the Thursday edition of A Public Affair. I'm your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff. Joining us today is journalist and documentary filmmaker Greg Mitchell, the author of some 13 nonfiction books on 20th and 21st century U.S. politics and history. His award-winning documentary feature, Atomic Cover-Up, screened at over 15 film festivals, and his The First Attack ads, Hollywood vs. Upton Sinclair, aired on hundreds of PBS stations. Our topic this afternoon is the historic Memorial Day Massacre of May 30, 1937, that infamous moment of class violence in which Chicago police shot and killed 10 workers and wounded some 40 others. Not just to look at what happened that day, but what led up to it and what, what came in its aftermath. Greg Mitchell's latest, his Memorial Day Massacre, Workers Die, Film Buried, aired last month on PBS, and is not just a story of a largely forgotten and unknown past, it's a story of corporate power and popular struggles against it, and as such, conveys varied lessons for the present. Greg Mitchell, welcome to WORT. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Greg Mitchell, let's start from a narrow frame and then work outward, since your film and its companion book provide such a much wider angle, some layered contexts for the tragic events of that May 30th, 1937 day. What happened that day? <laughs> well, um, local Republic Steel was on strike. Workers are on strike. Uh, it was part of uh, a number of strikes that were going on in uh, steel companies throughout the Midwest and Pennsylvania. They'd been on strike for a few days. And uh, they'd had already had a couple confrontations with police uh, in the streets. Um, you know, a few people were beaten up, a few people were arrested. Uh, police were now on edge, the workers were now on edge, uh, and it was un- uncertain uh, how the strike was going to go. Now, this was at a time of great labor uh, ferment in the U.S. Uh, the uh, sit-down strikes had become popular and quite effective. Uh, General Motors and Ford had uh, already given in to workers' demands, and, and the demands were really nothing more than what seems common today, which was the eight-hour day and recognition of the union and time and a half for overtime, things like that. Um, steel strikes also were going on around the country, and the uh, actually the biggest company, U.S. Steel, had settled with the workers, but the smaller steel companies, which were by no means small, including Republic Steel, um, were... Uh, we're not giving in to the workers' demands. So the strike, it was un- unclear how the Chicago strike was going to go. So the workers called for to rally local support and support from other workers. They called for a picnic on Memorial Day uh, out on the field in South Chicago near the Republic Steel Plant. They're on 116th Street, 118th Street. Uh, huge open field that they called a prairie. It was so big. <laughs> it doesn't seem like a prairie to me, but... Uh, an enormous field, and they called for a picnic and uh, for families and children. And so on that Memorial Day, on a sunny day, 88 degrees, uh, people dressed up in their Sunday uh, Sunday best. They brought barbecue and cooked out, and the women and children and so forth. Uh, so the, the worker organizers then uh, proposed that people march towards the plant and set up a, a legal, already approved mass picket. And so, uh, you know, a large number in the crowd started filing towards the Republic Steel plant. But when they got halfway there, the Chicago police halted them, told them to disperse. And the workers didn't do that uh, right away. And so suddenly police opened fire at point blank range and uh, immediately hit a number of the workers, protesters, who then fled. And as they were running away, Many more were shot in the back and uh, and fell. 
And then the police went through the crowd and started beating them with uh, their billy clubs and with axe handles given to them by Republic Steel. Uh, they also had fired tear gas that was given to them by Republic Steel. Uh, when the dust started to settle, they started arresting the people they had just shot or beaten and rather rudely tossing them in paddy wagons to be taken to distant hospitals. There were no ambulances, no doctors. Uh, and so the actual, the people who had been uh, beaten or shot then were arrested and, and taken to prison hospitals and prisons. Uh, so when the day ended or uh, when, uh, when the tally was final made, uh, there were a 10 who had been shot and killed and uh, 40 to 60 who had been badly beaten and treated at hospitals. Only a handful of police were seriously injured at all. And uh, so it became rather quickly known as the Memorial Day Massacre. You're listening to Greg Mitchell, doc film documentarian and historian journalist who has brought us uh, this recently aired film Memorial Day Massacre, Workers Die, uh, Film Buried. We'll be opening up the phone lines per usual at half past the hour if you want to join in the conversation with our guest today. Uh, comment and observation. Give us a call at 608-256-2001. So, Greg Mitchell, the violence unleashed by the Chicago police obviously did not occur in a vacuum but came about in a broader context, some of which you've already touched upon. Um, what led up to that tragedy? What, the the big issue maybe you can go into a little bit was a union recognition in this era. Right. There was no unions in steel for, for how long? Right, yeah. Well, they, they had formed, well, they never had a real union. Uh, they had formed the Steel Workers Organizing Committee, uh, which, uh, as I noted, had... Uh, successfully won concessions from U.S. Steel, which was the biggest uh, company in early 1937. Uh, the other large steel makers, which were very large, you know, Bethlehem Steel and, uh, and of course, Republic Steel itself, scattered across uh, Illinois and Indiana and Pennsylvania, uh, did not give in to those, uh, those demands. And they didn't even recognize the union. Um, so the leader of Republic Steel, who was very powerful in the industry, a man named Tom Girdler, was uh, rather violently anti-union. And he, he had a famous quote where he said, I'll go back to ra raising apples back, back home before I give in, before I sit down with John L. Lewis. Of course, John L. Lewis was this kind of firebrand uh, leader of the United Mine Workers. He then became head of the CIO and was uh, very, very involved with the, the steel workers and involved with this issue. So. Um, the lines were really kind of drawn, a little bit surprisingly, because as I as I mentioned, uh, Ford and GM had made concessions to the auto workers um, and other industries, uh, very very varied industries, uh, had won concessions. So the trend was more towards recognizing the union and um, at least offering some concessions. But that was came to a dead stop with the Republic Steel in Chicago and and some of the other other steel companies. So, there were, you know, the workers were getting a little desperate, I guess you'd say. Uh, and the police, uh, as many Chicago uh, listeners uh, and Midwest listeners will know, the police were very friendly to the uh, powers that be, very uh, friendly to the city officials, very friendly to the corporate officials. So the uh, they were very much in bed, you might say, with Republic Steel. And the, in fact, their headquarters for the day of this Memorial Day massacre was inside the gates of Republic Steel. Uh, so it was not a great situation for the workers, but still it was a shock, uh, especially given that the crowd had women and children uh, and uh, they, they didn't really expect this kind of confrontation. And suddenly to, to have uh, well, what is, still stands as the worst bit of violence and fatalities uh, in history. There hasn't been anything to duplicate it since 1937. I'm at least in the labor realm. Sure. I, I want to come back to the the role in, of the police. Uh, but there's an earlier question, and that is, how do we explain the resistance, the intransigence of the little steel 
uh, bosses of Tom Girdler and so on. Um, what what's that context? That that animus? Were they? Well, I suppose, were they, were they I get. I guess my, part of my question is: Were they? They feel themselves squeezed between big steel uh, and labor. I think it was more a matter of. Well, they felt they didn't have to give in. That there were. This was during the depression. You know, nineteen thirty-seven was still. I, I would say the worst years of the depression had passed, but we still was very much in the in the depression. And there was, you know, it was a bit of a sense of, boy, you're lucky to have a job, or if uh, if you don't want this job, uh, we can hire someone else. Uh, and there were plenty of other workers around, so uh, so there was a bit of a bit of that for sure. Um, also, the the uh, they already had ingrained uh, spies. The the management had uh, and police had very spy all the labor organizations, uh, so they were very much kept in in the loop. Uh, on what was going on, so they sort of felt they could control it. Okay, we know what they're planning, uh, we know what their demands are, we know it's a slippery slope, and uh, I suspect they felt that inevitably they would have to recognize the union and make some concessions, but they didn't see any reason to do it uh, in the near future. Again, we're listening to Greg Mitchell, uh, the producer-director man behind the wonderful recent documentary uh, on the Memorial Day Massacre of 1937. Again, we'll be opening up the lines at 608-256-2001 at the half hour. I should mention, oh, sorry. Please. I'm sorry, Please. I should mention that uh, you, you keep referring to the documentary. It is available, even though it aired on, uh, on uh, many PBS stations around the country, it is available online at PBS. If you go to pbs.org and type in Memorial Day Massacre, it will Come right up, and you can watch it. Uh, watch it at home for, I think it's 27 minutes long. So it, it's available. It's not something that's sort of in in the past. Now it's going to be up on PBS.org for several months yet. Well, I've had I've had the pleasure of, of watching watching it, and I've learned a lot. So yes, I, I it comes highly recommended. So the strike begins. The little steel strike, as it came to be known. Uh, uh, comes on uh, March 30th of 1937. Uh, SWAT, the Steelworkers Organizing Committee, proposed an agreement similar to the one at U.S. Steel. Um, its list, you know, common today, still very much demands in the labor movement, uh, must have seemed quite uh, uh, off this planet by, with some of these older characters, uh, older b- labor bosses. Or, or excuse me, <laughs> labor bosses. No, um, you know, leaders of industry in the period. Yeah, well, you know, as I mentioned, the 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 um, notion of the eight-hour day, five-day week, you know, eight-hour day, time and a half for overtime, uh, doesn't sound too radical, but it was a um, a big step up from what workers were getting at the time. The pay was increased. Uh, they, they started, you know, it varied from contract to contract, but things like, uh, you know, seniority was recognized. Uh, actually, um, um, black workers were given a little, a little better shake, a little more, more of a chance. Uh, women were pay- paid. Uh, there was a t- tremendous uh, pay scale difference where, you know, women were paid much less than men doing the same job. So there, were, there had already had been some, some really good improvements in uh, many of these uh, industries. Uh, blue-collar industries, uh, but it was by no means certain how far that would go, and uh, you know what what would happen in the future. So the workers were very much still uh, adamant about uh, protesting and striking and picketing and and so forth. And uh, this actually, the shooting of all these workers in Chicago did have a big effect in in at least for a while, chilling the atmosphere and of uh, militancy, you might say. So a strike was called for uh, May 26th. Uh, Steelworkers got ready to walk off the job. At the same time, companies prepared for the strike as well. Talk about the, that preparation, the company tactics beforehand. You touched on it a bit, uh, but it's quite astounding what went on, I think. Well, one of the, one of the tactics that... Um, companies use, and it certainly happened here, 
was uh, in cases like this, there would always be a certain percentage of workers who were against the strike, or at least could be convinced to to not go out on strike. They might have been sympathetic with the strikers, but uh, management would t tell them, "Well, you might lose your job if you strike. Uh, you're going to be on the on our uh, blacklist or whatever." Um, and so they would set up inside the factories. Um, living quarters for workers who stayed behind. And uh, police actually helped in this, bringing in cots, uh, making sure food could arrive. Uh, so the, these workers would, for as long as necessary, they would stay inside the factory, be, be taken care of by the, uh, by the bosses, and, uh, and stay also stand as a symbol that not all the workers were in favor of the strike. So in this case with Republican Real, there, it's, it's estimated that up to a thousand workers stayed inside the plant and uh, were, you know, taken care of. Uh, and I also mentioned, as I, as I mentioned earlier, the police were allowed to set up their headquarters for any, uh, any trouble on Memorial Day. And they, were give, they gave to Republic Steel uh, the tear gas and uh, wooden axe handles that would supplement uh, you know, any, actually I'd say the other way around, <laughs> Republic Steel gave to the police tear grass and wooden axe handles that could be used in the, against the uh, protesters. So we're back to the police. And nice segue, thank you. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> that relationship between the company and the police, um, police and service to Little Steel, and particularly the Republic, uh, to some uh, some large extent armed equipped equipped them with weapons and ammunition as you've mentioned talk about that a little bit the com companies collectively spent more than 40,000 on machine guns rifles shotguns revolvers tear gas yeah. well they were they were ready uh, as some other companies were they prepared for uh, let me say prepared for war but there had been violence uh, particularly in the midwest uh, pennsylvania uh, going back a year or two, uh, certainly uh, we saw it at other other large plants where there was uh, violence would break out, workers would not disperse, and in some cases vigilantes. You know, Michigan was a real hotbed of uh, protests uh, and confrontations, um, and uh, sometimes vigilantes were called in by the companies to supplement the police or take the place of the police and they and the companies would arm the vigilantes so there's footage of uh these vigilantes standing there with uh again with uh, billy clubs or axe handles and uh, tear gas shotguns and so forth so there were a lot of workers who were uh injured thanks to these vigilantes that were supplied by the police and or the companies companies had their own security forces uh, so it was not that unusual. However, this still, on the Memorial Day Massacre, the death toll of 10 hadn't been approached anywhere. Uh, injuries in the many dozens had not been approached anywhere had, uh, as a number. Um, and so it, was, it still was shock. It kind of shocked the country that it would, would go this far, although I, I have to say it's, it would seem kind of predictable that it would, something like this would happen given the level of, uh, of weapons that were around and the, uh, you know, the conflict between the uh, protesters and the police or the protesters and the company. And, and of course, that history of class violence goes way back in Chicagoland, right? As yeah, I, as no, I was, you got the Haymarket, Haymarket and, and so on. So, yes, it was. Uh, right. Again, 608-256-2001. You're listening today to historian and film documentarian Greg Mitchell. We're talking about the events surrounding, the moments surrounding the Memorial Day Massacre of 1937 at Republican, Republic Steel, 2006, 608-256-2001. You know, Keeping on this for a moment and preparing for the for the hour, I did some background reading, some boning up, as you as, as they say, uh, and came across this this little factoid that Republic alone had more weapons and related supplies 
than any law enforcement agency in the entire country. Quite astounding. Yeah. Well, they had actually in, in my film, I show uh, the, I actually show a receipt I got for, for their tear gas order. They were the number one uh, purchaser of tear gas in the country. And uh, so this receipt for this order ticks it off all the various uh, tear gas and other other things that they were purchasing. So the strike started on May 26th. What took place uh, around uh, not just that Republic, uh, but amongst Little Steel uh, in regionally and so on? Well, the other strike... Uh, the other strikes went on in a, in a similar fashion. They didn't have this kind of confrontation. Um, you know, what often happened was the companies that would kind of lock or, or lock or ask their workers to stay inside the plant um, would then get, they had to make sure supplies got in. So they would uh, fly in supplies to the plants uh, planes would drop packages and so forth. And actually, there were incidents where workers on the ground fired, on, not in Chicago, but fired on planes that were bringing in. Uh, and there was violence around uh, trucks and so forth that were bringing in plants. So it was it was very heated. But the, the so-called little steel strike, if, if people want to research it, it, it is separate from the big steel or U.S. steel strikes. It's, it's really known as the little steel strike of 1937. So... There's a, there's a lot of material out there that covers the other, the other sites as well. Um, uh, I, sh I should say though that this, this should, the Republic Steel already had seemed like a hot button issue because there had been some violence earlier that week, and that's how we ended up with the sort of the other half of my story, which was the Paramount newsreel team coming to film it. The that the cameraman happened to be there, not completely by chance, because they suspected there could be violence and they wanted to have a newsreel team on hand to document it. Well, we're certainly going to get to that part of the story, uh, an important uh, revelatory, really, uh, part of the story. Uh, but first, uh, Shali and Jack, our engineer today, tell tell me that um, <clears throat> we do have a caller with a question or a... Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I see in my message here that the caller is not online. So we'll ju we're just going to, for now, continue on. Um, so let's focus in on the uh, immediate event, back to the immediate event. Uh, there had been two nights after the start of the strike uh, on um, March 28th, uh, several hundred, <coughs> excuse me, several hundred workers tried to m march on the plant and set up a picket line and and were beaten by police, and that kind of provoked, led to the f uh, further pro provocation? Right. Yeah, it was, uh, and, and it caused bad uh, bad feelings on both sides. The police didn't like to have to, have to be in that kind of position. Uh, and the workers, of course, were outraged because they the, the mayor of the city had given them permission or had announced that uh, picketing would be allowed, picketing would not be interfered with. Uh, and the workers were just trying to set up a picket line. Uh, but the narrative that, that started was that the workers were trying to break into the plant and release the uh, other workers that were kept there, like they are going to take over the plant. That was never in the cards. But it set up a narrative where after the massacre on Sunday, police would argue, we had to stop them because they were going to march on the plant and uh, take it over. Uh, so to prevent that kind of violence, we had to uh, open fire. And, of course, that was never never going to happen. But that uh, narrative started because there had, there had already been confrontations that week. I'm sorry, you just broke up on the last part of that. What, what did you finish saying? The, this narrative of, of the, the, the marchers really intended to take over the plant was, uh, was, was started because there already had been confrontations during that week. And so police were arguing that there was an organized effort to try to actually not just picket, but take over the plant. So some 250 city police uh, block uh, the route to the factory gates. Uh, the shooting takes place. Talk a little bit further about the treatment of civilian casualties. You mentioned it in, in the opening, uh, but talk about it a little bit further. 
Well, there, there were a, a large number of casualties um, scattered on this field, and there had been no, uh, not only had there not, never been any, there was never any, any plans to have any uh, doctors or ambulance or anything nearby. Uh, the, the only people there actually trying to help the injured were they actually the workers themselves who had uh, a couple of vehicles with, you know, they put Red Cross kind of signs on them and tried to take some of the injured away themselves. But in most cases, they were stopped by the police. And what the police were doing was was simply picking up the bodies. Some of the one, one reporter said it was like picking up sacks of potatoes and kind of tossing them into paddy wagons where one paddy wagon had 16 of the injured and one paddy wagon kind of piled up. And then they were taken to a, the nearest hospital was about 20 minutes away, but some of them were taken to a prison hospital, which was over an hour away. Uh, so that the, 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 the casualties were not handled uh, humanely at all. And, and the, the film footage, the, the Paramount Newsreel footage captures all this. It's, it's, it's reason, one reason it's so dramatic and was so controversial and had to be suppressed was that it not only shows the shootings, but then the police uh, treating the workers, uh, the injured that way, you know, tossing them into paddy wagons and uh, acting like they were just so much garbage. So that's that's one reason the footage was, uh, you know, was so sensational. That actually leads to perhaps our first caller's question or comment. Hello, Ron, you're on the air. Hi, Alan. Uh, very nice program. Um, first, I have a comment about the the, the earlier uh, U.S. steel strike in 1919 was uh, very controversial, too. So I'm sure some of that weighed on the minds of the company uh, in this particular case, uh, and it was led by left-wing radicals. Um, and, and the second, uh, you know, William Z. Foster in particular, uh, but the second point I want to make is that the U.S. Senate suppressed this film because they felt it was would uh, it would cause widespread uh, uh, disaffection in the American populace. And I want to find out from you exactly where that came from, why the U.S. Senate got involved in suppressing a public film uh, in our country. And I'll just hang up and listen. Thank you. Okay. Uh, well, thanks for the question, but the, you don't have that quite right. Actually, it was the U.S. Senate that brought the film to light. Uh, Paramount News itself uh, suppressed the film. Uh, they made they made one newsreel based on it uh, and then suppressed it. They made a second version, and they buried that. And it was only after the U.S. Uh, a U.S. Senate committee hearing led by Senator La Follette of Wisconsin uh, had a sensational three-day hearings about a month after the massacre that they brought. They had subpoenaed the footage, and they publicly aired the footage for the first time. And uh, then, only then, did Paramount do a full uh, newsreel uh, using the footage. And even then, there were uh, movie chains that refused to show it, and uh, venues such as Chicago, St. Louis, Massachusetts, that uh, also banned the airing of this footage. So it was actually the U.S. Senate that brought it to light, and it was the private company, Paramount, which uh, had suppressed it. So in the immediate aftermath of the massacre, uh, Little Steel's public relations teams uh, began creating this counter-narrative that the uh, national news media picked up on. We, you, you alluded to that before. Um, that brings us, of course, to the question of broader media coverage, a uh, question very much alive today with with, with so many uh, situations. Um, the initial portrayals, uh, well, the, the event was portrayed as a riot or mob action, uh, that police were provoked by a dangerous mob, had no choice to open fire. Uh, newspapers mm -hmm. in Chicago and across the country supported the the false police accounts. So then we we're at the scene now. We're just touching touching on it, uh, but you had this Paramount Picture newsreel team, this film crew, uh, at at the scene, and 
What happened? There's several steps that take place here. What happens to that Paramount newsreel footage uh, in its first, second, third iterations? Yeah. Well, uh, as you mentioned, the uh, overwhelming media coverage around the country, which you know was mainly in newspapers at, back in the day, uh, was that these uh, may be regrettable, but it was uh, people got shot and beaten because they were rioting or about to riot. They were a dangerous mob. They were uh, some some accounts had them firing first, uh, uh, provoking the whole massacre. Uh, in reality, none of them fired anything. Uh, I mean, none of them had guns. Uh, and um, but it took time for that to to really settle in the what actually happened. And that's why the newsreel footage was so important. If the newsreel footage had come out in that first week or two, it would have shifted the narrative quite a bit. Instead, uh, the newspaper reports and, you know, there were uh, back at the time that day, probably most newspapers around the country were anti-labor. Um, they were not sympathetic to labor. Uh, certainly the largest paper in Chicago, the Chicago Tribune, was very anti-labor. Um, and so this was pictured as a, a, basically the rioters provoking this massacre. And it only came out later uh, that all 10 who had been shot and killed and most of those who were wounded were shot in the back or in the side. Uh, almost none of them were shot in the front. So it was pretty clear that they were shot as they were running away, which is not actually a great look for the police. Uh, but this had not emerged for two or three weeks, uh, and the footage was suppressed. Uh, but once the uh, hearings in Washington began, all this evidence was brought forth. Um, you, you, know, you mentioned I have a companion book to the film, also called Memorial Day Massacre. It's the first oral history of the massacre. And in it, there's dozens of accounts by some of the workers, some of the wounded, some of the reporters. So it's really the first chance to really see what people saw at close hand that really happened that day and that was denied to the public for so long afterwards. So we're talking about the hearing uh, that's held June 30th to July 2nd of 37, uh, co-chaired and uh, inaugurated really by... Uh, Wisconsin Senator uh, Robert LaFollette Jr. Uh, let's talk about that. Talk about the, uh, one of the things I found most interesting really, tell us about the hearings and the innovative use of the Paramount film, uh, the the raw footage that was subpoenaed by the committee. Right. Well, the in some ways, uh, one of the heroes of the story was a reporter uh, named Paul Anderson, who was one of the top investigative reporters in the country, uh, based at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch at the time. And he got wind of what the, what the, that this footage existed. And so he tipped off the committee. Uh, they subpoenaed the footage. Anderson got to view the footage before uh, almost anyone else. He then went out and interviewed uh, some of the people, many of whom are featured in my book, uh, who actually were uh, were victims or witnesses on that day. And then he wrote a sensational two-part series that was carried by many papers around the country. Uh, this was just before the LaFollette hearing. So when the LaFollette hearing started, the story of this massacre had already started to turn. There were a lot of uh, people to be called on to testify, as well as many police. I, I think about 15 police officials and patrolmen uh, were also uh, testified at the hearings. So the hearings really presented a full picture of what happened. And then uh, LaFollette also screened the footage for the first time, both in regular speed and in slow motion, which was kind of rare at the time. And so you could see, and I, in my film, I show all this. You can you, you see the, the footage in various forms and various speeds. We can follow people who were, uh, you could actually see individual police uh, shooting at or uh, clubbing individual people. You kind of get a cast of characters in a way uh, because there is this footage and you can, as they did in 1937, put it on, uh, you know, put it on slow motion. Um, so it was quite, uh, you know, it was, it was an ex quite an extraordinary three days of hearings and it was widely published 
uh, excuse me, widely covered in, in newspapers around the country. You're listening to Greg Mitchell, uh, whose film, <clears throat> excuse me, Memorial Day Massacre, Workers Die, uh, film buried, uh, is now available online at the PBS site. I, again, uh, strongly recommend uh, you folks uh, give a look. So what were the effects of the Senate hearing? Well, it did, it did change the narrative for a lot of the, the coverage that then followed that. Um, but, you know, pe- people, as we see today, uh, you can look at footage and take a different opinion of it. Uh, people, some people saw the, some people never saw the footage. Uh, some people were in areas where it was banned still. Um, some people continued to live in areas where uh, newspapers were so anti-union that they didn't wouldn't really get a, an update on what actually happened that day. And the uh, little steel still did not feel the need to collapse uh, to the workers' demands. And so after uh, a few more weeks, the workers went back to work. Uh, some of them were blacklisted and were not allowed to work uh, again for the companies. Um, so you you know you might have thought the 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 happy ending here was that the worker the, the companies uh, ended the strike gave workers everything they wanted and so forth but that that didn't happen um, and so uh, the labor battles continued and it wasn't for another couple of years that the little steel finally recognized the union uh, met some of the demands. Um, and it really was not till the start of World War II throughout the steel industry when uh, the Roosevelt administration made it clear that the companies were not going to be allowed to uh, continue their uh, anti-union activities, that the full contracts were signed. Uh, but you know, one of the biggest effects of the Memorial Day Massacre that I alluded to earlier was that it, it really made both sides a l- less I want to say less trigger happy because the workers had not really fired their triggers, but um, make them less a little less militant. There was more of an effort to uh, cool the rhetoric a little bit, a little less of an effort to uh, put bodies on the line. Uh, the police were not quite so so quick to attack uh, picketers and so forth. And so this really was the last uh, the last major major confrontation where you had as as many as 10, 10 dead and uh, dozens injured. Uh, uh, it, so it led to a little bit more of uh, negotiations, let's say, between unions and management. And, you know, it's a whole another story, but there's some people feel that the unions then got too cozy. And the history of the labor movement in the 40s and the 50s was a little, getting a little too cozy to management. But that's that's another story. Uh, Shali tells me that we do have a caller on the line. Hello, Steve. You're on the air. Hi, Ellen. So, Mr. Mitchell, wasn't the sit-down strike a violation of U.S. law? Could you help with the definitions and the fine points of that type of labor action? Also, did the 1937 violence actually exceed the nationwide actions of 1894 centered on the Pullman Palace Car Company in South Chicago? Thank you. Uh, well, I'm, I'm really not an expert on the 1894 strike, I have to tell you. Um, so I can't really I can't really respond to that question. But uh, cer- certainly strikes were, uh, you know, were legal. Uh, they were in all sorts of different industries. Um, they were seen as legal. They're the, of course, under, under the, the New Deal, you had the National Labor Board. Um, there had been rulings just in 36 and 37 about the, you know, union rights, more, more rights. Uh, they had friends in Washington, you might say, uh, friends in the courts. So it was definitely a, more of a wide open time, more, definitely more room for uh, organizers to organize and, and people to uh, even to strike. And there were some, of course, limits on striking in certain industries. But, I mean, you had everything down to, you know, sit, sit down strikes at Woolworths, you know. Uh, you had farm farm labor strikes, uh, so it, but it was a tie, an incredible time of uh, strikes around the country. Some successful, and you know, and some not. 
So little st- little steel companies eventually defeat the strike uh, after about, what, over five months. Um, but the groundwork for the unionization of little steel industry was set, uh, as, as you've mentioned. I want to shift gears a little bit, and, and that is uh, a kind of question I'd like to ask all my guests in some <laughs> way, way uh, shape, or form. Should I worry? Should I worry? No, 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 no. I, okay. I'm... Uh, I'm far far from a hostile interviewer. <laughs> um, in in working on the documentary and watching it in its completion, what lessons did you learn? Uh, what's your takeaway on the importance of that history? Uh, what's its value for today's audience? Uh, you know. no. Well, I think you know we have. I, I was partly inspired by the fact that we we have had a surge in union organizing in the past several years uh, after much documented decline in labor activity and the percentage of people who are uh, part of unions uh, that has started to turn around in recent years now it's not dramatic super dramatic but uh, you I'm sure most people have seen a publicity and news stories about strikes in various uh, places in and organizing uh, new new unions in and in, in some modern day incarnations such as at Starbucks, at Amazon, uh, at Apple, uh, you know, real, you know, real modern, uh, you might say modern equivalents of the old, old days. Now you're never going to get that, the, the 10,000 people working in a, in a auto factory or steel factory, but, uh, there has been a very heartening, uh, return to, to labor organizing and a lot of younger people are, are leading it. So I think this, Kind of the documentary I did and the book, the book that I did, I think is, uh, I hope, inspiration for people to look back and the, the sort of these are the shoulders they stand on. You know, look at what these people were willing to sacrifice. Uh, look what these people were, were willing to uh, try to survive and uh, take very brave steps. Uh, of course, their families were right there with them. So I think in that in that sense, it's a uh, you know, it's a real inspiration, I think, for, it should be an inspiration for people today, uh, you know, with that kind of modern relevance. And the other thing is simply, I guess, throughout my career, I have focused on a lot of these media cover-up kind of official and media cover-ups um, and film footage and so forth. So it really was right right in my normal interests. And again, it shows the dangers of, uh, you know, allowing false narratives to take hold uh, from allowing both officials or news organizations, or you know, Congress, to suppress evidence, uh, including footage, but other evidence as well. So you know the dangers of, of that in our democracy and the need for uh, you know the free flow of of important evidence. So, what are you working on presently? I, it seems that you, you you've been fairly prolific. Uh, so I assume <laughs> I, I assume you're working on something all the time. Um, we met, you know, before, of course, going on the air, you mentioned that um, uh, you've had calls from people in regard to the forthcoming Oppenheimer film. Uh, yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Well, just very briefly, it's been one of my main uh, things that I've researched and written about going back to the 1980s is the atomic bombing uh, creation and the use of the atomic bomb against Japan in 1945. And I've I've written three books about it. I did an earlier documentary. You mentioned atomic cover-up. Um, so I, I've had a lot of interest in this for a long time. And of course, Robert Oppenheimer, the so-called father of the atomic bomb, was uh, quite the famous figure, an important figure. And uh, Christopher Nolan has now made a uh, much-anticipated movie that's coming out July 21st uh, about Oppenheimer. It's going to be one of the biggest movies of the year, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so naturally, people are talking to me about uh, uh, what I know about Oppenheimer. And my, my most recent book on this was, was called The Beginning or the End. And it's about a MGM movie of that name, which was the first atomic bomb movie. We're going to now have the, the latest atomic bomb movie. There haven't been that many. But this uh, 1947 MGM movie called The Beginning or the End, which is also the title of the book, uh, was quite scandalous in that it started out as a warning to not go down the nuclear path quite so much and have a nuclear arms race and 
Um, look at look what the bomb can do and will do to us. Uh, and then after pressure from President Truman and from the Pentagon, that film was totally turned into pro-bomb propaganda. Um, and where Oppenheimer fits in is that he, uh, despite raising objections about what he thought was a ludicrous film and uh, many falsehoods, he signed off uh, allowing himself to be depicted and actually became sort of the narrator of the film. Uh, and uh, so it, it was quite a, a picture of Oppenheimer who often wanted to have it both ways, uh, as, as we will probably see in the Christopher Nolan movie. He liked to wring his hands. He liked to wring his hands and worry about nuclear weapons uh, while at the same time uh, endorsing them, endorsing their use and, and defending them. So it's, uh, it, it's quite a, a mixed picture of Oppenheimer. Yeah. We're going to go back to uh, the previous caller had sent a, a message uh, that Shally is is going to uh, uh, read for us because we still we still have a little bit of time, Greg Mitchell. So, Shally, what did our caller ask? Hey, Alan. So we had a caller who um, did not want to be on the air ask us about the uh, nineteen nineteen twenty two. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, massacre in uh, Hawaii, the uh, Hawaii island of Kauai in 1924 at Filipino strike headquarters um, in the city of Hanapepe, I think. And 16 strikers were shot and killed um, as a product of that strike. Mm-hmm. I, I really don't know much about that, so I, I thought I'll look that up. I'm not, not aware of... Uh uh, not aware of that. Of course, it was outside the U.S. at the time. It probably didn't get the attention it deserved. So it would be interesting to see that 1924. Well, well, Greg Mitchell, we have we have a few minutes left. Um, you, we kind of tore through my notes here, and we covered <laughs> we covered what I wanted to cover. Um, what do you ha- you have any other projects? New projects going on, or you, what are you thinking about? Uh, no, actually, I, I, the, uh, the, uh, I, I, I've had, uh, fortunate to have, or maybe it'll turn out unfortunate, a couple of my, my books in the past, uh, that have been optioned for movies. Um, so maybe one of them will be coming through. I'm advisor to another, uh, a nuclear documentary. Like I said, I've been one of my main focuses, uh, I'm certainly going to be talking and writing about the Oppenheimer uh, link and uh, you know in my books and my my work uh, it'd be very interesting uh, and, and and you know I mean the reason I even talk about it is is nuclear weapons we, we've even seen today there's a, there's a sense for people to to, to rightly focus on um, uh, climate change particularly younger people but you know nuclear weapons threat has never gone away and here, here today we have this massive story about the the Soviets uh, perhaps uh, threatening again to use nuclear weapons or to um, they're, they're doing some funny things with their nuclear power plants that, that could end up that could be another disaster, nuclear plant exploding or something. So the nuclear threat seems to go away, and then when it comes back, people realize that unlike climate change, it could you know it could end the world uh, almost overnight. Um, so that drives me, and uh, so I'm always uh, you know even though there's nothing we can do about uh, people who died in 1945, uh, uh, there are, the threat today is, is real. And the U.S., in fact, s- still has a first-use policy, as do other countries, which means they have the right to use wep- nuclear weapons first, even if in a conventional war. So it's good to be reminded of that. Uh, and the you know, the nuclear threat in general, it's, it's, it's never a mistake to kind of remind people that the nuclear threat has never gone away, uh, starting with Oppenheimer's project in uh, the 1940s. You know, Greg Mitchell, I have to comment that uh, you, you mentioned some, you know, a Soviet threat. I didn't, I didn't know there was anything, such thing anymore. Yeah. Well, they've threatened that, I mean, this is why the, the history of the bomb and is so uh, I mean so vital in a way, but you know the the uh, Putin 
uh, since the start of the Ukraine uh, war, uh, periodically has raised the uh, possibility that he could use battlefield nuclear weapons. And, uh, and he has even overtly said, uh, well, what, where's the U.S. get off saying you can't use them? You used them twice. You're the only country that has used them. You know, you killed 200,000 civilians in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You know, where does the U.S. get off lecturing? So, you know, that kind of history, you know, it, it's a, we may not like that, that history or that approach, but that history is there. And, of course, again, Oppenheimer is going to, the, the, hopefully the Oppenheimer film, which I have not seen, is going to raise these questions, raise the profile of the nuclear threat. And maybe it won't. Maybe it will. Uh, kind yeah. of uh, submerge them, but uh, the the hope is that the Oppenheimer film, if it's a big big at the box office, is going to do do a good work in raising these nuclear issues again. Yeah, no, it's the only reason I raised the whole question of the Soviet Union is that the Soviet Union is long gone, and uh, Russia <laughs> Russia has right. Russia has ret- right. you know there used to be the old thing uh, you know to those of on the left who would hear over the years of why don't you go back to Russia, and uh, my response became, uh, uh, "What do you mean? Russia has returned to Russia." But anyway, <laughs> I want to uh, I want to thank you uh, very much for the hour. We're about out of time here, unfortunately. Uh, a parting word for our listeners. Well, like I said, the the the, the film, unlike some PBS films that disappear, or something that's at your local cinema that disappears, you can anyone can watch this film anytime on PBS dot org under Memorial Day Massacre, and of course the book is available, the same title, and uh, so it's you know it's it's good that something is is out there. If people are interested, they can watch it and and read it, and, uh, and you know, and hopefully it's so they they have. Uh, Plenty of time this summer to do so. Well, well, Greg Mitchell, I want to thank you very much. You've been listening to Greg Mitchell, historian and film documentarian, journalist. Uh, we've, we've been talking this hour about his Memorial Day Massacre, Workers Die, file, excuse me, Workers Die Film Buried, uh, which aired on PBS last month and is available now online. Greg Mitchell, on behalf of uh, Jack and Shali Engineering and Producing today uh, and our listeners uh, on WRT. Uh, I want to thank you again. I've been your host for this hour. My name is Alan Ruff, and I'll be speaking with you next week.